Welcome to the That Don't Fit podcast, a podcast where we're dedicated to talking about life and life's real issues that cross racial and generational lines. My name is Jared Torrance, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy Farmer. We're friends, we're pastors, we're wanting to help people talk and process life in a crazy world. Welcome to the conversation. As part of our Foundations for Racial Conversation series, I'm going to be addressing critical race theory. This, the message is, in, is one of a number of messages and conversations we've had over the past couple of years, seeking to build foundations for engaging issues of racial and ethnic, ethnic harmony. So I don't want you to see this as a standalone. This is actually part of a series. And the other things we've talked about feed into this and follow along um, with that. So you'll want to kind of connect with those as well. I encourage you to access the other talks. Uh, and we also have a bunch of other recommended resources. If you go onto the website and look for race and ethnicity conversations, there's a lot of material there for you, including uh, all of the, uh, the videos from, that we've shot over the, over the past uh, couple of years in this series. So we're in Ephesians 4. Um, I'll begin in uh, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord, bless your word tonight. Help us to engage it and engage you with understanding and wisdom as we talk about these things that are very real and alive and important in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage from Ephesians clarifies what our goal is tonight. Paul calls upon the leaders of the church, specifically in our case, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, to train the saints for our call as a church to become mature servants of Christ in the church and in the world. We are not telling you tonight as Christians how you need to think about politics or culture. We are addressing the role of the church. God's gathered people set apart for his purpose in the world. This is the focus of the apostle to the Ephesian church and it's ours for covenant fellowship. This is really the case for any time we engage a cultural or political issue or social issue, and it's the focus of this teaching on CRT. Now, embedded in Paul's instruction is that maturity in Christ includes the call to discern the influence and influences around the church and within the church. Where is the church vulnerable to error? 
What is swirling around the church that we need to be aware of and careful of? Because the church is embedded in culture, the ideas and values and ways of that culture will always be intermingled with the church. This past week, I had a chance to have a conversation with Betra Kenna, um, who is Ethiopian, because I'll be going to Ethiopia to teach at a pastor's college on counseling. And one of the things I wanted to ask him about is, so what are the issues that I would need to address helping pastors know how to counsel people in Ethiopia? And so it was a great time where we had a chance to talk about the culture and the church in the culture and finding out that, that there are a lot of things about the, the church in Ethiopia, which has existed there for 2,000 years, that, that are tremendously relevant for us here in the States. And who they are is something we should pay attention to, how they have survived and thrived over the years. Century after century is an amazing thing. But he also told me about, well, there are cultural things that happen that compromise the church, that there are things that are part of that culture that are not part of our culture that can weaken the church. And I think we have to understand that, that any church is embedded in a culture and that culture inevitably frames out how it handles its mission. And if it's not careful, it can become determinative about how it handles the mission. So that's what we're concerned about, is the mission of the church in the culture. Our authenticity as a church requires us to understand and biblically discern cultural trends so that we are not carried along by them, especially if those trends and ideas fit what we already think or feel. There are various ideas out in our culture that we don't feel necessarily the need to discern because we tend to agree with them. There are other ideas that we feel particularly needful to, to, to deal with because something about them strikes us as wrong. That may say more about us than it does about the ideas. In any case, we need to discern anything coming from the culture. This passage can serve us well in that endeavor. It offers three clear guiding principles for any cultural idea, principles that can be applied to political ideas, to economic ideas, to artistic ideas, social ideas, psychological ideas. Tonight we'll apply these to the idea of critical race theory. Number one, we must understand the ideas in the culture that shape the church. We must have an awareness of those ideas as distinct from the church. We must, number two, assess ideas in the culture as to how they might undermine the church. And number three, we must respond to ideas in the culture in ways that are befitting of the church of Jesus Christ. So our first point, understanding, number one, understanding critical race theory, applying those three to this particular topic. Now, Paul is addressing this mixture of church in culture throughout the book of Ephesians, addressing people who followed the course of the world, Ephesians 2, 1, were at one point alienated and far off from God's covenant, chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. He calls them to put off the old self and its ignorance and futility of thinking, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. And he warns them to look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, because the days are evil. Chapter 5, verse 15. So throughout the letter, Paul is addressing people who have not lived somewhere in a hole. They have lived in a culture. They are now coming 
living in that culture as believers, sorting out what is relevant from my culture that I can bring into my experience as a Christian and what is not relevant. So Paul is instructing them on this throughout that letter. Paul's counting on them to have some awareness and understanding of the ideas that could be problems for them. He is not outlining them. He's just saying, you know what they are out there. Let me help you to know how to discern them. So you might be here tonight saying, you know what? I heard about this CRT thing, and I thought it was some kind of a new electrical, electrical car. And uh, if you're here and you're wondering, no, it's not. Um, but thank you for coming, and thank you for designing to understand better. That pleases the Lord. Now, to try to give us all a baseline, I'm going to offer a one-sentence summary of critical race theory. This is a, not a wise thing to do. I realize that it's like asking someone to give you a one-sentence summary of the game of cricket. I was in Australia back in March, and I, I was between sessions, and I was standing, there was a cricket field out where we were at, and I was standing next to a guy who had played cricket up to a fairly high level, and I just said, can you explain this game to me? So for the next half hour, looking at the field, he instructed me on all the ways you play cricket. I gained nothing from that experience whatsoever. I got nothing out of it. So this one-sentence summary is not going to give you what you probably need, but it's a way to put us, in a sense, on the same footing. So here's my one-sentence, farmer-condensed definition of critical race theory. Critical race theory is the assessment that enduring racial injustice in our society is the result of the cultural majority instituting, perpetuating, and benefiting from economic, political, and social systems to the detriment of minority cultures. Now, uh, in your outlines, there, is, there are two pages of quotes. Those are quotes from all over the spectrum, from foundational writers on critical theory, critical race theory, to Christians who are assessing just a broad variety to give you a flavor. What you'll find in reading those is that no matter where someone is coming, there's not a lot of question about what, what, uh, what critical race theory is. There is considerable question about what it does and how it's meant to function. So um, you can, if, I get, if you get bored with what I'm saying, just read those. Those will keep you interested. Now, critical race theory has raised important questions that we can't simply ignore or dismiss. Now, in general these days, if you're going to have a conversation on race, it's probably going to be using language and concepts drawn in some sense from critical race theory. It would be wrong for me to say I haven't benefited in my own perspective by these conversations. In fact, I know I have. I feel like I've benefited talking to people who are using critical race categories to talk about race. It has helped me. And I want to go on record that it has helped me. It has helped me better understand the way minority peoples and cultures in our society have historically had to experience life. It's helped me better understand how what has always worked for me has often worked against others. It's helped me see with more objectivity 
how injustice functions in our systems. If you have one examples of that, you can ask me when we're on the panel. How injustice does function on a systemic level. It helps me wrestle concretely with the unearned but very real benefits of being a member of a majority culture. It helps me resist the temptation to see the sin of racism only in individual or overt terms. And frankly, it's made me uncomfortable and ultimately uncomfortable with myself and the way I think about the world. Over my years as a Christian, I've learned that when I get uncomfortable, that means God is at work in something. And I best pay attention and press into him and his word. So I do not resist being uncomfortable. So I'm in real sense very grateful for my personal experience engaging the ideas that critical race theory have put into the mainstream discussion. Now, this is very important. This is where it's going to get a bit technical, but it's necessary. From this point on, I'm going to be primarily talking about critical theory, of which critical race theory is an expression. You're going to hear me talking about mostly critical theory, and I'll explain why in a second. A little bit of background may be helpful. Now, this is a disclaimer. I'm not qualified to talk about this as an, on an academic level. If you are here and this was your major, this was your PhD, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Get prepared to wince as I totally flatten out what you've taken years to study. When I talk about critical theory, we're talking about these things in their mainstream cultural manifestation. So I'm not addressing what's happening in the academic world and the conversations and dialogues and study that's going on there. I'm talking about the way it plays out in mainstream culture. First, and here's where I start flattening out everything, the philosophical basis for CRT is a combination of Marxian political critique and Freudian psychoanalytic theories that emerged in the 40s primarily addressing the issue of fascism. That's where the schools developed these ideas. Those are the taproots of critical theory. Not the only things that come into play, but those are two huge idea worlds that came into play to develop this idea of critical theory. That critical theory was brought into legal studies in the 1970s as a way to analyze why civil rights legislation was not producing the social and economic change it was intended to produce. It was a problem that was being discussed in legal studies, in, in law schools, and in legal theories. Why, is, why are these sweeping legislative measures not changing anything? And so they were trying to find theories that fit that to deal with that. In this, in the, uh, that's important because CRT developed in debate on legal theory not as cultural theory. Now, in the 80s and 90s, various critical theories emerged alongside of critical race theory. In other words, the same basic premise uh, that came from the 40s um, was adapted in various ways to create other kinds of critical theories. 
alongside critical race theory, critical feminist theory, critical gender theory, and others. The same basic philosophical framework, but applied to different perceived systems of inequality or injustice. In the past couple of decades, this matrix of critical theories has become the dominant view in most academic cultural studies programs. This is generally what you're going to find rules the day in university settings. Now, as moved into popular forms, in fact, outside of the academy, critical race theory has been intentionally selected, and I use that word intentionally, intentionally selected as the umbrella term for all of these critical theories. When you, when you hear the word critical race theory, presume that all these other th critical theories are inside that term. All perceived inequities have their equal claim with the long-standing issue of racism and the battle for civil rights. Anything related to gender, sex, whatever the issue is, is put on par with race as an issue of civil rights. That's been the intentional political goal that has shaped the way critical race theory has grown in its influence. So what has developed over the decades and is now in play is about far more than race and ethnicity. It's my opinion that the intensity of the debate over CRT in our country is because there are cultural issues far broader than race in play. And both sides of the debate know that. I think you're going to find, because of this, it's extremely hard to keep a conversation about critical race theory to just the issue of race. And it's coming from both those who are proponents and those who are opposed. There is a sense, and you see it. I saw it this past Sunday. I was reading an article, uh, uh, a, um, an editorial uh, by a woman who was talking about the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. And, and she was lamenting the lack of progress being made based on what was said at the time. A, a great article. It was, uh, it was very, very uh, compelling and very insightful. But in the middle of it, she began to weave in LGBTQ conversation in the middle of an article about this race issue. That's not unusual. That's typical. There is a conflation of these ideas under what is generally described as critical race theory. So we have sought to understand it a bit. At least you have an idea of some of its roots and how it plays out culturally. I think that's a fairly, that's a relatively uh, balanced perspective. So number two, assessing critical theory as it relates to the church. Why must we assess critical theory or any other cultural idea? Paul tells us what happens when we don't. We're in danger of beating, according to verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in, craftiness in deceitful schemes. The word picture here is a boat on the sea. 
waves of controversy pushing the church in all different directions, the winds of unbiblical ideas threatening to blow the church off course. Note that Paul attaches an intent to these ideas. They are cunning, crafty, and deceitful. They have an agenda set up against the truth of God. So Paul's not just talking about what people are talking about. He's talking about intentional undermining of biblical truth. Paul has a limited scope of concern here. He is not concerned about what's going on in Roman culture. It's not our job to debate every crazy idea in the culture. Only as those ideas threaten to create turmoil in the church or divert its mission do they require our discerning attention. Our primary, hear me on this, our primary concern is not the state of our culture or our country. That matters to us, but that is not our primary focus. When we make culture our primary focus, we actually sail right out into the winds of error. We can't control where the culture goes, and we certainly can't make it go where we want it to go. The reason for this teaching tonight is not because of what Karl Marx said in the 1800s or what critical theory philosophers said in the 40s or what happened in legal studies in the 70s or what is happening in the culture wars right now. It's because critical theory as applied to race and reactions to it are creating confusion in the church, dividing God's people and affecting our witness in a lost world. That's why we're having this conversation tonight. It's because of this confusion in the church that critical theory qualify, qualifies, I believe, for Paul's test of every winded doctrine by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So here's how I would apply the test. I had a chance to share this with the pastoral team. We had good discussion over it, some good input. I'm not saying this represents us all individually, but this is something that the pastors approved me sharing um, for your benefit. So my assessment of critical theory. Critical theory, first, is founded upon a worldview that must deny the existence of God. Both Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud were materialists. They had no place for a transcendent God or authentic human faith. The ultimate goal of critical theory is human flourishing, but an explicit denial of our identity as image bearers of God. There's no way to link critical theory and Christian worldview. They are antithetical. That's my first critique. My second critique is this. Critical theory is inherently revolutionary Therefore, it cannot be redemptive. I studied Marx in college. That was my major, really. So this is where we live. Marxist ideology of every kind has focused understandably on injustices and impressions and, and oppression. And frankly, if you want good, clear understanding of the way oppression works, if you want insight into how oppression works, read Marxism. They're good at that. But its remedy is always the same. 
overthrow of power structures in favor of the powerless. Marx had in mind revolution leading to some kind of utopian system, which he interestingly never filled out all that much. He didn't have a clear idea of what the end product would look like. He knew, or at least he speculated and theorized on what it would take to get there. Critical theory has that in mind as well. There is some, something out there that is believed can be achieved with the right overthrows of power. Critical theory, Marxism, unleashes the alienation of the oppressed in self-justified revolutionary power, but then expects that same impulse to become a means of equality once it actually gains power. It's the fatal flaw in Marxist reasoning, the idea that those who have devoted themselves to taking power from those who have power will then, once they get it, distribute it equally to everyone else. That's why Marxism has toppled many a bad government, but always erected a bad government in its place. Biblically understood, Marxian critical theory addresses the pervasiveness of evil in systems while ignoring the pervasiveness of evil in human hearts. That's how I came to Christ, is recognizing that, that what I believed about the world based on my Marxist beliefs did not deal with my sinful heart. It was capable of corruption and oppression regardless of the system I was in. Third, third critique. Popular critical theory creates its own form of oppression. There's a retributive aspect to critical theory as it applies to our culture. Those who have been legitimately repressed, and they are those people, and they are groups of people who have experienced that, in critical theory have the moral right to repress the ones who've been repressive. If I can claim to have been repressed, then I don't just have the right to speak. I have the right to silence those who have not let me be heard. And the more ways I've been repressed, the more rights I have to be heard and the stronger my right to judge who is repressive. This is the ethical implication of intersectionality, which I have some quotes on intersectionality in if you haven't, aren't familiar with that. In the world of intersectionality, there is an absolute right to silence any voice that is judged as repressive. This is not an overstatement. This is not me getting on a high horse. This is what is described in a lot of the literature. The literature is explicit that this is a justifiable and often necessary tactic in the name of overturning hegemony, which is just simply the domination of one view over others. It is ultimately humility by imposed shame. Popular critical theory in practice oppresses in the name of oppression. A couple of examples. First of all, there is no 
conservative voice in critical theory. Um, it is various forms of liberal voicing. There is no conservatism of any kind is considered out of the pale of orthodoxy. Um, that includes if you, for example, are an African American and you are conservative. You have no voice in this conversation, even if you can, can point to oppression as, as one among a people who've been oppressed. Another example, another day, that's actually brought up more and more frequently is in the growing Hispanic and, and Latino populations where a lot of people retain their Catholic beliefs. They are not allowed, those who are Catholic, who are coming from those cultures where the Catholic Church is still a very dominant presence, they are not allowed into the discussion because the Catholic Church is repressive and the Catholic Church is, is, uh, is, is anti-choice. And so all the other repressions in the intersectionality get brought to bear on people who could otherwise justly claim that I am not in the majority and in fact experience a certain level of oppression myself. So on the basis of the assessment above, I believe that the health and mission of the church is best served by ultimately rejecting the ideas and approaches of critical theory as it relates to gender or race or any other concern in the culture where we seek to bring the hope of the gospel. I would not recommend, I would not support finding ways to draw critical theory into our use here as a church for handling issues of race. We can gain insights, which I have, but I don't think this is a case of let's eat the meat and spit out the bones. There isn't enough meat to risk choking on the bones here. And the meat we need is already available to us in God's Word if we'll just sit down and study it. More to the point, to the extent that we allow any ideas from the world to be our point of reference for a worldview, we close our Bibles as our source of wisdom and knowledge. We make a choice. Either this worldview can shape how I look at things or the Bible can. I cannot combine them. I also believe that this kind of biblical assessment that I've tried to do, which is debatable, you might, you might look at it differently than I do from the Scriptures, and I'm okay with that, but... It should be brought to any idea blowing around us that might draw us away from our primary concern. We live in a culture divided by worldviews and ideas. Rejecting one cultural view does not mean we accept another. We are tossed about because winds and waves come from all directions. Specifically, to use the current idioms, if you're assuming that what I've just done is reject wokeness, don't be misled in thinking I'm advocating anti-wokeness. Whatever either one of those unhelpful terms really means needs to be evaluated on the basis of God's Word. The truth is, eliminating critical theory and race conversations doesn't eliminate the problem with historic racism and its present-day manifestations in the culture and in the church. We can't simply live as the problem has now gone away. The work to deal with it remains. So three, responding to critical race theory as a church. Critical theory 
and critical race theory. If error does destabilize the church, Paul offers a remedy. What you might expect is a call to stand against these ideas, to build arguments against them, to eradicate them wherever you see it. But what does Paul say? Verse 15, he tells us, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up on love. That is astounding. The answer to bad ideas is not better ideas. The answer is the body building itself up in love. Well, I know that some Christians have been enticed by critical theory and are being tossed around and confused at it. I'm not sure this is the problem that everyone here deals with. My concern is if we don't sufficiently apply Paul's methodology for addressing potential error coming from any direction, wherever it comes from, we need to apply this. Paul, that word Paul uses beginning in verse 15 is crucial. Rather, it directly ties our response to error to speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way. As most of us know, Paul is not giving you permission to say anything you want as long as you think the other person really needs it. That is not speaking the truth in love. What he's saying is that the love of Christ is so compelling in us that how we live and how we speak in any context should reflect who Jesus is and what he would have us do and say. In other words, I live my life as if he is the audience. I live my life as if he is the one I'm speaking for. I am his ambassador. Why would I say anything about my own opinions when what matters is what he says? Why do my opinions matter? No, I want to represent Christ, love and truth. As we live in this, this way, we mature out of childish worldly ways into a maturity that builds the church and promotes its work in a sin-sick world. Now, sadly, I am concerned that we are overly prone to childishness, which is Paul's word in verse 14. Paul uses the word childish. We childishly can allow error to drive us. But we can also respond to what we see is wrong with adolescent name-calling. I'm grieved, brothers and sisters, when I see Christians, and often, sadly, Christian leaders slapping pejorative labels on anything in race conversations that to them smells of critical theory, labels like, that's woke, or that's wokeism, or that's CRT, are convenient and childish ways to broadly diss and dismiss any perspective another person brings that doesn't line up with what we think without even bothering to asking them what they really think. And frankly, the same thing happens when labels like far right or implicit racist comes from the other direction. The effect is to, and I'll use the word, cancel. That isn't just the effect, that's the goal is canceling. Anyone who has a different perspective or experience on race 
than you do simply because you don't like the way they say it. We simply must do better. When a brother or sister brings up an experience they've had with systemic inequality or injustice, you might feel like you want to shut things down because that sounds like CRT. When a brother or sister wants to bring up progress that has been made on racial equality, that's not the time to hit the eject button either. It's an opportunity to press in, to speak the truth in love, to literally act on truth by love. Because the ultimate goal is not purging error, but being joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the goal. This is what Paul says is our best resilience against the storms of error. That's remarkable, folks. The best resilience against error is true unity in the truth and love of Jesus Christ. That's the remedy Paul gives. Let me close by offering a brief application to three different contexts. Let's say you engage a non-Christian who is arguing from a critical theory perspective on anything, race, gender, whatever. Don't make God have to humble you. It isn't fun. Humble yourself. Let God raise you up. We actually talked about this in an earlier foundations message. If that person doesn't know God and they have experienced injustice in life, then critical theory will make a lot of sense to their experience. It does offer itself as a grand unifying theory of all of life. Don't just contend with ideas. Don't just throw facts at the conversation. Consider the person as a person, connect with them as a person, listen to them. Also, my experience, folks who use critical theory categories can be just as sincere and apprehensive at having a conversation as I believe I am. We treat them like somehow they're on an agenda to convert. We don't want to be treated like that. Let's treat them like maybe this is a hard conversation for them as well. Maybe they're testing ideas as well. Maybe they've never had somebody actually talk to them in a way that, 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 that gently raises questions about how they say what they're saying. Maybe there's an opportunity to actually find some way to have a meaningful conversation. Most folks are not looking for a fight. They just want to be heard. Who knows what God can do when we actually listen to another person, give their perspective, or share their story. We can learn a lot more from that than just walking away in a huff. To the Christian who feels like you're being judged negatively as woke or implicitly racist by someone else, we could all be called far worse. I actually think that depending on the conversation, someone might call me woke at one time. In a different conversation, I might be called far right. 
I'm not looking to toe a line. I'm trying to respond biblically. And frankly, I'm a 63-year-old white guy, and it's about time I stop worrying about what people call me anyway. Don't be easily offended. Be committed to bodybuilding in the Pauline sense. Be one of those of the body intent on working properly so that the body grows and builds itself up in love. That's what I want to be. Can I just be one of those pieces, parts of that body that actually works properly? That seemed like a good idea. And then addressing social media, let's pause before we share or like or comment on something cultural in social media. Now, we can think we're just sharing an opinion, but the truth is, the way God sees it, is you are a person speaking to other persons. When you respond to a post or a tweet without consideration of the ethical implications Paul lays out for maturity in the body, you own the effect on everyone who reads it, whether you think you do or not, because God places that responsibility on you. If it causes another brother to stumble, then you have not been a part of the body working properly. You own the effect on that person and on the body to which you belong. Let's not be a bruise in the body of Christ. Let's stop name-calling. Let's stop pontificating. Let's stop canceling. Let's get on with the business of gospel-shaped conversations, dealing with hard issues like race and ethnic harmony. Crazy idea. Let's make room for brothers and sisters who exist outside the black-white dynamic or who don't have their origins in this country. Hearing them may give us all perspective about what we need to do and what unity can look like. And let's do it all in the spirit of what calls us, Paul calls us to at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 3, that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that is how we make a difference. Amen. Amen.